as as Elder Richard or Rick was was describing, um, everyone does count and everyone does make a difference, a huge difference, and it's not necessarily something that you know we can quantize and say, okay, if I do this, therefore it will count, and if I don't do this, therefore I can't do anything about it. Um, my name is Gerald. It, uh, the only person that I know here is Andy here, and I was here, I think, a couple of years ago. I was with you. We did a worship service here. Um, we are involved in broadcasting, training, supporting, funding uh, television programs, missionaries, um, native missionaries globally in about 60 countries. And we do have, um, we support 100% over 2,500 field workers in predominantly the 1040 window. I don't know if you are familiar with the 1040 window. Does anybody know what the 1040 window is? 1040 window is 10 degrees latitude, 40 degrees longitude, from north of Africa all the way to Indonesia. Is home to about 3.5 billion people, of which 1.3 billion are Muslims. And that is the part of the world that we concentrate. However, not only in that geographic part, but also globally, worldwide, we have concentrated our ministry in all its ramifications onto reaching out to Muslims. In in U.S., we have been involved in, in this work for about three years. And overall... Um, I do have the privilege of, of speaking in churches, many of our churches, and what I'm here for basically this morning in this part of the seminar is to teach you, educate you, and inform you as to what Islam is about, what is it we have to know about this religion, and why is it that the Christian church is having such a difficult time with winning Muslims to the Lord. Islam is the greatest challenge that the church has ever encountered, ever encountered. Rome pales in comparison to, to the challenge that Islam poses. However, let me, before, I, before I start off, let me ask you a question. How many of you have Muslim acquaintances, friends, co-workers, and so forth? Very good. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have been threatened by them? None of you. How many of you have been told that they will blow up your houses, that they will threaten your children, and so nobody, I'm glad. Um, is the media portraying the correct image of Islam, do you think? Well, um, I'll have to share with you a few things today. Um, due to lack of time, I'm not sure if I can cover what I needed to cover, but if we can work something out, I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit after lunch. I'm not sure if most of you will be here and all that, but I will try to cover as much essentials as possible. And how and why is it that we need to be informed as Seventh-day Adventists, of all the Christian denominations worldwide, there's about 4,000 denominations, Christian denominations. 
We have been told that the denomination that is the most equipped to carry out the gospel of Christ to is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And for the most part, the theology has many commonalities with Islam. I know it might sound a little bit far-fetched, but I'll give you an example, a very fundamental example. In regards to the kingdom of God, in regards to the establishment of the kingdom of God, once I asked a Pentecostal pastor friend of mine, I said, when do you think that the kingdom of God will be established? He said, when Jerusalem is at peace and when Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem. That's when the kingdom of God is established. I asked a Presbyterian pastor friend of mine. He basically said the same thing, when Jerusalem is at peace and when Jesus and the 144,000 are reigning from Jerusalem. That's when the kingdom of God is established. I asked a Mormon elder friend of mine. And he said, when Jerusalem is at peace and Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem and Jackson, Missouri. Because there's two capitals. Mormons believe that there's two capitals. Then I asked a Muslim imam, a Muslim cleric in San Fernando Valley. He said, the kingdom of God is established when there is no more sin. There's a new heaven and earth. And God is reigning supreme. So, let me ask you a question. Who shares your theology of all these people? It's not the Pentecostal, believe me. Though we might be, though we might be preaching the same Jesus, I hope we are, but we're not sharing the same theology. So, what I'm here to share with you, a very brief overview, scriptural overview, about the children of the East, as opposed to children of the West, or known as the Hebrew children. How many of you have seen this writing? Can I stand there so you guys can see? How many of you have seen this writing anywhere? Okay, do you know what it means? This means, well, it reads, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, meaning, in the name of God, the compassionate and the loving. Is that a, is that a good statement? To, to open up the Qur'an, the Islamic holy book, that's how it opens up, in the name of the compassionate and loving God. Can we scroll? Okay. Abraham had basically two lines of descendants. If you remember, the left column, his first child was born to who? To who? Okay, and who was the child? Ishmael. Okay, so Hagar, or Hajar in Arabic, she bore Ishmael. What does the word Ishmael mean? The Bible says it. Ishma means listen. El means God. God listens. And that's the name of her child. After Sarah died, Abraham had other wives and other children. And also the Bible says that in the line of Ishmael, that they were messengers that later on show up in the Old Testament. We'll get to that a bit later on. In the far right column, the Hebrew people, Sarah bore Isaac, true or false? And God had many messengers in that line as well. So 
basically two lineages, two lines of descendancy, Ishmael and Isaac. And who is the oldest? Next. Next slide, Birkir. Okay, let's see if, if God had anything or any plans for Ishmael. Genesis 16. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. Hagar fled because of Sarah's cruelty and not because Abraham put her away. It was Sarah that could not stand her sight. True or false? God sent an angel to name the child. The Bible says that the angel visited Hagar when she was pretty much in the wilderness and he told her what you will call your son. The name Ishmael means, listen, God, El. God, through the angel, promised in Genesis 17, 20 to Hagar, I will make a great nation of his, meaning Ishmael's, descendants. Now let me ask you a question. Um, Every time in the scriptures, when an angel appears to a woman who is about or will give birth, and to name the child and tells the woman what you will name the child, is that, does that child usually turn out to be someone special in the Bible? Can, do you have examples? Who? Before? Before Jesus? Samuel? John the Baptist? Remember? Did they turn out to be someone very special? Okay. In this case, we can't deny, we can't change the process. When the angel has appeared to Hagar and has told her, you shall name the child Ishmael, that means that child is special. God promised that I will make a great nation of his descendants. Has he held to that promise? Is it obvious? Okay. Let's go to the next slide. The promise confirmed at the spring of water. The angel said to Hagar, Get to your feet, lift the child up, and hold him in your arms, because I will make a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She went in, filled her wineskin, and gave the child a drink. God was with the child, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness of Paran. Later on, Abraham emerges from this region. Next slide, please. God's plan for these children of Abraham, that they also preserve the truth. They would work in partnership with the children of Isaac, and later on we will find out. And they turned out to be mostly merchants and traders. Okay? Did the word Ishmaelite ever resurface later on in the Bible? After this incident, did the term Ishmaelite resurface? When? When Joseph was in the well, thrown in by his brothers, who came to rescue? They were called Ishmaelites. Okay? And they were traitors. And the Bible says that Ishmaelites at one point will come and join the descendants of Isaac in the scriptures. Let's see if that will work out. Next slide. In looking forward to the gathering of people from all nations around the throne of God in paradise, prophet Isaiah wrote this. Chapter 60, 
verses 6 and 7. Great caravans of camels will come from Midian and Ephah. They will come from Sheba. Bringing gold and incense, people will tell the good news of what the Lord has done. All the sheep of Kedar and Nabayoth will be brought to you as sacrifices and offered on the altar to please the Lord. The Lord will make his temple more glorious than ever. All the cities mentioned were occupied and built by the descendants of Ishmael. Next slide. Here's what the Bible has to say about the jointing or the joining of these two descendants throughout scriptures in key points in time. Left column, Sarah brought forth Isaac. Right column, Hagar brought forth Ishmael. When Abraham died, Genesis 25 says that Ishmael and his children and Isaac and his children joined and they buried Abraham. So Ishmael does not disappear from this scene. Next slide. Notice here, left column. Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, his descendant, which later on brought forth Moses. Right column, Ishmael and the Midianites. Ishmael brought forth the Midian or the Midianite race, from which came two very crucial individuals. Jethro and Ayub in Arabic means Job. We know for a fact that Job is the oldest book written in the scriptures. And the word Job, the name Job, is Arabic, Ayub. And it is so interesting. These two figures played a crucial role in the history of the children of Israel. In what way? Look at the middle box top. Joseph rescued by Ishmaelites. True or false? Look at the box underneath it. Moses given refuge and taught more about one God by men of the East. How did he get that from the men of East? How did he accumulate the knowledge that he had of God? And when did he accumulate that knowledge? Was it through the time he was in Egypt? Forty years old. In the wilderness. Who did he go to? Jethro. Jethro is a descendant of Ishmael. Okay, so remember the 40 years that he spent in the desert, he spent it with the children of Ishmael. He spent it with the children of the east. Next slide. Notice here. How do they come and join in crucial times? Hebrew worship in temple. Look at the middle column. Eastern traders provided the oil and spices for the Hebrew worship. And that's, by the way, when we say Torah in Islamic context, means the Old Testament. Book of Exodus, chapter 30, says that the ointments, the oil, the spices used for the temple worship were brought from the east. Okay? Bought from the traders of the east. So remember, Hebrews were worshiping in the temple, serving in the temple. The needs, the oils, and the spices were purchased from the children of the east. Not from pagans. Not from the descendants of parasites and, you know, Palestines and all those things. But it was from the traders of the east. And look at the bottom column. Middle box. Son of Isaac, son of the east, led Hebrew people into Canaan. Joshua. Remember after 40 years, when the children of 
Israel basically died out, the generation that left Egypt. God promised them, you will not see the promised land. How many people from the camp saw the promised land? Not Jethro. Two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Do you know the word Caleb is Arabic? means dog. It's so interesting. How does that individual find his way into the camp of Israel? But it's so interesting that Caleb, Caleb, or Kalba in Aramaic or Arabic means a dog. Okay? I mean, that's the, that's the name. Let's not get into that. But it's so interesting. It's an Arabic root word. A descendant of Isaac, Joshua, and a descendant of Ishmael inherit Canaan, inherit the land. Is that coincidence? Let's do one more slide in this topic and I will change the, the folder. Okay. Pay attention to this. It goes a little bit fast, but, you know, left column, always remember, you know, it's basically the children of Hebrews and the far children of the east. Jews about to enter Canaan, a prophet comes and wants to bless them. Remember that? Balaam? Balaam was a child or an individual born to the descendancy Solomon, Suleiman in Arabic, was visited by who? That's considered queen of the east. Okay? The children of the east basically occupied everything to the east of Jerusalem, to the south of Jerusalem, and to the southwest of Jerusalem. All these, all the way to Africa, were the descendants of Ishmael. Look at the bottom column. When Jesus was born, by the way, the name Esau in Arabic means Jesus. When Jesus was born, who came to see him and pay homage to him as king? Wise men from the east. Uh, We do have ample evidence now that the country that they came from is today's Iran. And... Even the city we have been able to pinpoint, it's called the city of Save, and it's also mentioned in the adventures of Marco Polo. But that's, an, that's another issue. It's so interesting. When the wise men came from the east, how old was Jesus? Everybody says he was newborn. But if we read our scriptures correctly, when the wise men came, And when Herod tried to kind of persuade them to come back and give him a report, and when they did not come back, guided, directed by the angel to flee from another direction, Herod's command was, kill all the babies from two years and under. Why two years? And here's another evidence we know, we have. The shepherds came, saw Jesus when he was in the manger. But according to the scriptures, Matthew says, when the Magi's came to see Jesus, he was in the house. Doesn't say in the manger, in the house. And 
joining that, combining that with the information that we have, Herod's command, two years and under, you put them together, we conclude that Jesus is at least two years old. When the wise men have come from the east. By the way, what's another name for wise men? Starts with an M. Magis. The word magoi, or mag, that's an Aramaic name. And my question is, the Bible says they were wise men from the east. Some translations say kings from the east, and some translations, the Greek translation says magis from the east. Let me ask you a question. How did they know about the Messiah being born? They were astrologers and stars. stars. But we go a bit further. 600 years prior to that, who was the key figure, the Jewish key figure that lived in that area? Daniel chapter 5 and 6 says this. In the Aramaic, that part of the scripture is not originally in Hebrew, it's in Aramaic. Do you know what is Daniel's title or job description when he was serving the Babylonian monarchs? He was called Rab Magoi. When you take the Septuagint translation or the Aramaic translation, it says Rab Mag. Do you know what Rab means? Lord. He was the Lord of the Magis. He was the Lord of the wise men. It's so interesting. The Bible says that Daniel, and we know how faithful Daniel was, no doubt he passed on this information to the Magis. The Chaldeans, the, you know, all the soothsayers and in, in, in that strata of people who served the Babylonians and later on the Persians. Would there be any surprise that Daniel, having received that vision, one of the visions, one of the informations that he received from the angel Gabriel was, remember Daniel 9, the 70 weeks? After 69 weeks, the Messiah will show up, Messiah will appear and all that stuff. Daniel, I have absolutely no doubt, he passed that information to his generation and it stayed generation to generation until the wise men from the east knew that this was about to happen. Took them two years. They didn't come immediately. Take them two years while God's people are sound asleep. Children of east come to visit the Messiah. How many of you are familiar with Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher? Pascal has a very famous quote. He says, history teaches us one thing, that we never learn anything from history. What goes around comes around. You know, children of the East were more attuned to the, to the birth of the Messiah than the children of Isaac. Can I change the folder, um, the file? Um, how much time do we have? I forgot. Two minutes. Okay. Then let's, let's hold on to this. If we can work out, if you guys, uh, if we can um, stay after lunch and do another half hour, 45 minutes to finish my file. I know I'm late today. Uh, my fault. Couldn't arrange um, our, our affairs in the morning. But uh, if you're interested, I'll find out during the sermon or after the sermon, whoever is interested. If you want a continuation of this, two more parts to this. Um, of how is it that the Adventist church can be fully equipped with some of this knowledge. We will get into technical knowledge. What the Quran, the 
Islamic holy book has to say about Jesus. Uh, and it's so interesting that most Muslims and most Christians do not know what the Quran, the Islamic book, has to say about Jesus. What that book says about our books, the Torah, the Gospels, and if you know this, it will be tools at your disposal. Because here's, here's the crucial point. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why is it that we need to know and have this information? According to UNESCO and United Nations, in order for a generation to survive to the next, you need to bring into the world 2.16 children. In order for your generation to survive to the next generation. 2.16 children. In England, the reproduction rate is 1.7. In Germany, is 1.5. In Denmark, is 0.9. Do you think these countries will survive to the next generation? No. In America, with the conglomeration and influx of immigration, all this, the reproduction rate in America, in U.S., is 2.11. Do you know what is the reproduction rate in Islamic countries? 8.2. Is that something to reckon with? Absolutely. Who is the most equipped of all the Christian denominations to finish the gospel of Christ? The Adventist church. And if you're interested... We'll continue this afternoon. Um, we'll just see how many people, how many enthusiast um, evangelists out here would like to take this challenge. And so I'm done, and I'll pass the baton to Elder Eric.